another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, holler, the changing times, and the things really we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, and even if they don't dictate it differently today, I you know I keep saying this is different, but you know what? It's going to become the normal soon. Soon I'll be dictating like this every day from my home office, but uh, I'll be doing a few more mobile shows before uh, things change. Today we're going to do another listener feedback show, a little bit different than yesterday. I'm going to have more of your uh, emails, longer emails, not just your questions and, and your thoughts about what you're doing. I'm going to talk about some of the comments from yesterday's show on the blog. I'm even going to give you, um, I'm going to read to you an email from one of my uh, emails that goes into a special folder I have in Outlook. I have a special folder in Outlook. It's called Hate Mail. And it's from people that send me hate emails. And uh, I probably get about one a day. They're, sometimes they're quite amusing. I'll, I'll just pick one at random and read it to you, just so you can get an idea of the kind of things that I hear from the audience. Uh, but this is going to be a fun show. A lot of stuff to talk about. And I'm digging this, and I think it's going to be cool to be able to do a few shows like this here and there, where I can really spend some time actually reading the feedback from the listeners and responding a little more in depth uh, than condensing your question or your story into a two-line sentence and, uh, and and then reading it in a car and trying to paraphrase what I remember about it. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. Before that, though, we have some housekeeping to knock out. First and foremost, make sure you're taking care of our, care of our sponsors or taking care of you. Um, I really want you to check out MERS-radio.com, M-U-R-S-radio.com, and I want you to look at this deceptively simple equipment, and I want you to realize how cool it is. Uh, I purchased the following from them. This is a personal testimonial for you guys. Um, two handhelds, a base station, and two sensors. I put the sensors at my back gate, and I put the sensor at my front door. I've played around, and I've determined that you can really kind of dial these sensors in. You can get the full range of distance on them, or you can even angle them toward the ground a little bit and cut off that distance even beyond the settings of the unit itself. There's a lot you can do with them, a lot of flexibility. Well, here's what I have now. I know when I put my dogs in the backyard when they're trying to get out of the back gate, and if anybody comes in through the back gate, I'll know because my little alarm system goes off and says, alert, sector two. Alert Sector 1, and I know. Um, I'll probably add two more sensors when we move to our bug out location in Arkansas, and I'll set them up. And during hunting season, I can take one of the handhelds with a little uh, earpiece, stick it in my ear, set up the uh, sensors on a game trail, and have advanced warning of animals moving into my direction. Pretty cool when you think about it. It's just a radio product. So I want you to check that out. Check out MERS Radio's uh, little mini board on our forum as well. Uh, the other uh, sponsor of the day is Sawtooth Tactical. I want you to check those guys out too. They have a, a tremendous selection of gear and some really cool stuff that you won't find with our other sponsors. We have some sponsors that seem to compete with each other a little bit, but they all seem to have something unique, and that's why we have them all, and that's why they were accepted. You can tell that the guys at SawTac went out and they found stuff that was unique. And they have some cool stuff. And the other thing I want you to know about SawTac is uh, if you will mention TSP when you order from them, you'll get a free 50-foot hank of uh, rope. So, you know, they're throwing a little bit extra in there for the TSP or If you have a last-minute gift to get for somebody that's kind of a tactical-type person or a tactical-type person, check out SawTac today and see if there's something there you can use. Uh, that'll wrap up the uh, the sponsored portion of the show, but let's do a little more housekeeping. Get involved in our forum. 
please get involved in our forum. And again, uh, mentioning this for our sponsors, most of our sponsors now have their own boards on the forum. So if you have a question about a specific thing with a sponsor, go ask them directly. I'm sure they'll be willing to answer it for you. Um, the next thing is um, check out our gear shop cool stuff we have again that special that's running it ends saturday i believe is when this wolf's going to pull it down uh but it's a shirt uh two decals a big one and a little one a patch and a challenge coin and it's ten dollars off the price they would normally be so consider getting that that's another great christmas present for a tsp -er. uh consider joining the member support brigade i'll leave it at that today let's get into the show and let's talk about some things uh, let's start out with talking about some things from yesterday, and I'm on the blog right now. This, uh, hopefully this is going to encourage you guys to get involved with the show more than just downloading it from iTunes. We have a ton of iTunes listeners. I would bet that of our 10,000 downloads a day, three to 4,000 are from iTunes. And uh, that's great. I'm glad you guys are there. But a lot of you just get the show and go on about your mobile life. And you never take the time to come to the survivalpodcast.com. I want to show you kind of what's here for you a little bit today as we do this. So in every show, I publish a list of notes, you know, kind of bullet points from the show, my outline, so to speak, and uh, some links to some resources. Like I might say, this is a great place to get this. I'll put a link to it. I put a link to the sponsors of the day. If I mention a YouTube video, I put a link to it. So all the things I discuss are available there. And then the audience interacts with me because it's a blog. So they have the opportunity to comment. So these are some of the comments from just yesterday's show. Uh, yesterday we had a question on GPSs. Joe Blow, I don't think I'm doing anything but giving away his last name. Joe Blow says, uh, World, World Tracker Enduro GPS. Because guy was having a problem with the GPS getting too cold. The World Tracker Enduro is one of the smallest real-time GPS tracking devices available. Waterproof, highly sensitive, 5 to 10, five to ten day battery life. Ability to operate in extreme temperatures. Uh, and, and I'll leave it at that. So he, you know, suggested a model that he was able to look up. Then I like what Shane had to say. Shane said the issue is probably not with the GPS itself, but the cold will cause the battery and the internal backup battery to discharge rapidly. Some batteries seem to discharge at different speeds and different temperatures. More dependable GPS units have the batteries deeper in the unit or a more insulated covering. I think this is the one that nails it. But the guy said his problem was not just the batteries died, but he had to reprogram the unit. Well, there's a little battery inside these units. That you think of it like a ROM chip, and it saves the memory, and it's very low drain, and it doesn't need a lot. Uh, and it'll last a very, very long time in normal conditions because it's not really pulling much energy, but it keeps the, the, the programmed information stored. And if that thing dies, then that's when you have to reprogram it. And I think it's the bigger thing. A lot of people suggested better batteries or different types of batteries, but I don't think that's going to solve the problem as much as getting a better unit, which has the internal uh, permanent battery in a more protected location. So I would look at a higher-end GPS myself uh, from what you've described to me. I didn't want to touch this one much because I've played ex with exactly two handheld GPSs. I own one, and I've never been anywhere below 20 degrees with a GPS in my hand. Uh, so I try not to speak about things that I, uh, that I don't know. Let's talk about a different question. Guy had a question about a first rifle yesterday. And Norm H. says, for a first rifle... The 243, 30, 37mm 08, 256 Roberts. Any of these would serve the shooter for a lifetime. 
Also, Marlin makes a bolt-action XLR rifle I've heard great reviews about, and it's around $300. Now I'll see what Jack says. Well, here's what Jack says. Um, I like every one of those calibers. 243 was one I mentioned. Yes, so was 7M008. Uh, 30-30, I like it. It, but it's a, it's an eastern caliber. Let's let's be honest about that. What I mean by that is, if you hunt uh, woods and thickets where your long shots are a hundred yards is a long shot, thirty thirty is more than adequate as a deer rifle. Take that out west where you take two hundred yard shots on a regular basis, and you're pushing the limits of that rifle. Where your two forty three, your seven zero eight, and your two fifty six Roberts would all be in, in in hog heaven out there and be good at those long distance shots. So I like your caliber choices. Even like the thirty thirty, it's just not a long distance uh, round. Uh, but yeah, if you're in a place where you're hunting, I mean, honestly, in Pennsylvania, I don't think I ever shot a deer over eighty five yards because the woods are too thick, and in deer season, they're not running around in the middle of the fields. It, it's not like Wyoming and Montana and Utah and all those other places and Texas. So uh, depends on where you live on that one. As far as the Marlin bolt action XLR, I love it. I think it's a great gun. I looked at one at the last gun show. Uh, it's very well built. Uh, Marlin is steeped in tradition. Uh, they are really a great manufacturer. They're great people to do business with. If you ever need service on a weapon, uh, they're outstanding. I, I dearly love the company, mainly because of the 22s that I own. And uh, an uncle's personal affinity with the uh, Lever Action 336 uh, in 35 Remington. Uh, so I have a long history with Marlin, and I like them. That said, my only downside to the XLR is uh is it XLR yeah the X I don't think that's the right it's the XL7 I believe even though he said XLR yeah I'm on Marlin's site now it's the XL7 uh my only issue with the XL7 is in all the models that are available it's basically different stocks that are available um and there's only two calibers 270 and 3006 now Marlin was smart let's not go make 57 different configurations let's go make the two most popular Bolt action rifle calibers out there, so I think the 270 to 306 is a great way to do that. What I would love to see Marlin do is take a step into the uh, the youth model conf- or ma- youth and mountain rifle configuration, shorten the barrel just a little bit, um, maybe shorten the stock just a half inch, so it's for a slightly smaller frame shooter, but a guy like me could still use it as a mountain rifle, um, and make that sucker in 243. Uh, for kind of the smaller scaled shooter and maybe 308. I say maybe 308 because you already have a 306, but you know, it's probably a great place to go. I would love to see it in a 260 Remington with that shorter configuration. I just know it's a bad idea because that round doesn't sell anywhere near as well as it should. So from a commercial standpoint, the next place to go with this rifle to me would be a 243 308. From an ideal configuration, it would be a 243. And a 708 or a, a, a 260, one of those two. In fact, 7mm 08 might be the sweet spot to hit with that gun and make a big deal out of it as a mountain rifle. I think it might really do well if they put a big marketing push behind it. So there you go. That's what Jack thinks on that one. And let's see if there's any other comments from yesterday that are worth reading here on the air today. Well, the rest of those are on the GPS, and I don't want to go on to one subject too long. So let's go in. I've got a folder that I've just dropped things at random into. Um, to read on the air today, and some are questions and some are comments, and uh, we'll just go from here. Um, okay, this one is really not a question. This is uh, some good advice, and it's on a subject that you guys have asked a lot about for me, and I have limited knowledge in. So let's talk about medications. 
guy's name is Hank, and he says, Good morning, Jack. I'm a pharmacist who's been listening to the podcast, which is fantastic, for most of this year. And while getting caught up on some back episodes, I heard you discussing medication, specifically antibiotics. I agree that keeping a supply of antibiotics in the home is a great idea, but you do have to be mindful of the expiration date. You mentioned tetracycline as a potential antibiotic to have around. Expired tetracycline antibiotics... Uh, tetracycline and doxycycline uh, being the two most popular in that class can cause Fanconi-like syndrome, which is a kidney problem. My suggestion for an antibiotic to have around is ciprofloxin. Ciprofloxin, okay. Uh, I am a, I get a prescription for this whenever I travel around, out of the country, and it's a great treatment for traveler's diarrhea, but it has a ton of indications. It's a great antibacterial, it has great antibacterial coverage. It's pretty inexpensive and doesn't cause a lot of problems with medication allergies. I get a lot, I get the, the lot number and expiration date of the drug and put it, a sticker on it in the bottle so I know when it expires. Also on the medication front as a preparedness measure, I would suggest people get a 90-day supplies of their maintenance medication, for example, blood pressure meds, anti-seizure meds, immune suppressants uh, for transplant places, blood thinners, etc. That way, if the shit hits the fan, folks have plenty of medication on hand. In addition, the refill window typically opens a la- about three weeks before the 90-day prescription is actually due. My suggestion would be to refill the 90-day prescription as early as possible. This way, one could potentially have as much as 15 weeks of medication on hand, which should be plenty to get get through a shit at the fan scenario. Just my two cents, Jack. Again, love the podcast and keep up the great work. Hey, thanks for the advice on antibiotics. And, you know, I think I've gotten myopic with medication because I've learned for a fact that things like painkillers in most medications never actually go bad. They don't go bad. They they lose their, uh, uh, their effectiveness. Efficacy is what I was trying to say, and it wouldn't come out. They lose their effectiveness over time. And if you were to do something like put them into little bags and, uh, you know, uh, vacuum seal them or throw an O2 absorber in or what have you, um, they tend to extend their life quite a bit. But when we get into antibiotics, I'm taking Hank's advice because he's a pharmacist, also because it makes sense to me. An antibiotic is a, is a biological organism. It's not just a chemical organism. It's an antibiotic. It is a a living thing that you're putting into your body that attacks and destroys other living things. So for those of you who did not know that. So I guess the reason it causes this this Fanconi-like syndrome is it mutates or it devolves or in some way changes over time. So great advice, Hank. Thank you. I really appreciate that one. Um, let's look at another one. Uh, this comes from Dave. Dave says, first, I'm a prepper, not a survivalist. Okay, if that makes you feel better, um, to me that makes you a survivalist. Uh, I live in a townhouse on a nice part of town, but I know things can quickly get ugly here too. Talk like a survivalist. Uh I am now looking to purchase a generator for my basic home appliances, i.e. refrigerator, a light or two, and if necessary, a small heater. Can you educate me on what I should look for when purchasing a home generator? I was looking at a Honda EU2000i companion RV portable generator. Can you please advise? Absolutely. First of all, the unit that you're talking about, the little Honda 2000i, is an awesome generator. It runs really quiet. Uh, It's extremely dependable. It's a gas sipper. Um, and it, it's a great unit. It absolutely is not the right unit for you, though. Because you said, I want to run a refrigerator. 
This is what you need to do whenever you're picking a generator out, is you need to go look at all the appliances, all the things that you're going to want to run with it, and you need to determine two different measurements on them. You have to determine what is called the peak watts and the running watts. And you'll see that your generators are generally rated in peak watts and running watts. Now, what are peak watts? That's a temporary load. That's when I plug a refrigerator in, it peaks, and it quickly comes down and it levels out to a standard running watt. Um, not everything that you will plug in has a peak wattage, but many of the appliances do. You don't have to worry about what that with light bulbs and things like that. So you go around and you get your total peak watts and your total running watts of everything you want to run with it. The reason I say this generator is not for you is a small refrigerator, um, if memory serves me, will generally run on about 500 watts, but it generally has peak wattage of about 2,000. And that means if your generator is not performing absolutely optimally, um, when you go to plug that refrigerator in, you're immediately going to go past the peak capacity of the generator, and it's probably not going to start the refrigerator for you. Think about it like starting your car. You need a tremendous amount of power from the battery to turn the engine over. Once the engine fires and is running, then you only need a small amount of electricity to run the peripheral electronics of the vehicle, and much of that electricity is being created by the car itself through its generator. All right? Um, not exactly the same thing, but the easiest way I can make you understand it. So I'd say if you want to run a refrigerator and a few other things, you need to look at upping your wattage capacity of the generator a little bit. That said, that's a great generator. That's a great, if you're going to do it, eventually have two generators in the home, which I think is an ideal situation, that would be a great small generator. So I would be looking for something in the neighborhood of 4,000 watts or higher. Um, even with the limitations you've placed on it. Here's the other thing that you're going to need to think about with a generator. Um, most people think about, I'll just fire the generator, plug some extension cords in and run them. When you run an extension cord, you lose power. And since you're pushing the power to the peak of what's required, um, odds are that you're going to further exasperate the problem of not having enough peak wattage to get that refrigerator to start. Now, um, couple more things on this uh, this Honda EU2000i. Um, the big selling point of these, these things is how quiet they are. The negative side of them is, is how expensive they are. You can go out and buy a really decent 5,500 watt generator uh, from Home Depot or Lowe's and expect to spend in the neighborhood of $500. This little Honda is like a thousand bucks and um, so that's another issue. But what I was talking about with the extension cords and losing that, that power is since the Honda, and here's the other thing about the Honda, I couldn't find a peak rating. So usually if a generator is a 2,000-watt generator, maybe it would have a peak rating of 2,200. It doesn't say that. So I don't know if it just doesn't give a peak or maybe it's an 1,800 running watts and its marketing is lying to us. I don't know. But I just think you're pushing too far. Because the other side of this is the, the numbers I gave you were for a small refrigerator. If you're running a big refrigerator, a typical large refrigerator, um, I think you're going to be looking at startup wattage of about 3,000 and running wattage of about 1,200. You should be able to find this information on your refrigerator or the paperwork that came with it or by looking the model number up online. Uh, but you have to take those things into consideration. The best way to do this, if you want to do it right, and for the money you would spend on the Honda, you could get an electrician in to take care of doing this for you. 
by a generator sufficient to run more than you're going to ask of it because your run times are always given at half usage. So when it says it'll last 14 hours on a tank of gas, that's at 50% usage. That's every generator manufacturer does that. So what does that mean? If you're pushing it closer to peak, the 14 hours became 7, the 8 hours becomes 4, or what have you for, for anything. Then get, there's a, a device, a, a generator switch box or a junction box that plugs into uh, your circuit breaker on the outside of your house or in your garage or wherever. Uh, and you have that wired by an electrician. And all you do when the power fails is you go out and you run two, you turn your two switches and you run over to the generator power. And that way if the grid comes back up, you're not pushing power from the generator and the grid at the same time and creating conflicts. Uh, and then what you do is you start your generator up and everything just runs off of that and you don't get the losses that you do running through low-grade extension cords. So there's the best advice I can give you guys on generators uh, from a real-world question. I've been looking at doing a generator show. Here's the thing. I just blew everything I had there. Uh, that's that's what I know about generators. Uh, I know enough to have a good backup generator, a small secondary backup generator, and that's about it. It's something I want to learn more about, but that's all I got for you on that subject. That's why I don't talk about it more. Uh, let's go on to another subject. Okay, this one's just more of a, a letter I thought you would enjoy. Hey, Jack, uh, this, guy's from, this guy's name's Kirk. Uh, Kirk says, I'm just up north from you in Flower Mound. I learned about your podcast at an Appleseed event back in October, and I've been enjoying your podcast for the last couple of months. Signed up for the Member Support Brigade, and I really appreciate you putting this information out. I've been of the survival mindset for a while, but sharing your podcast with my wife has helped open her to this approach to life as well. Hearing some of these ideas from me weren't really resonating with her, but when she heard you talk about some of the same basic things and then expand on them, this seems to be effective. Anyway, the reason I'm writing to you is I'm also involved in the Revolutionary War Veterans Association, a nonprofit group who put on the Appleseed Marksmanship Clinics all over the country, uh, available at appleseed.org. There's a lot of like-minded individuals in TSP and the Appleseed program, and I think a little cross-pollination would benefit both groups. Appleseed has a weekly internet radio show on Tuesday evenings from 7 to 9. They're looking for guests to come on the show. I've suggested you as a possibility, but I don't know if they've contacted you or not yet. Anyway, if you have any interest in doing this, please let me know, and I'll find contact info for the guy who hosts the show. Absolutely. Love to go on Appleseed. Had a guy on the forum, don't remember his forum handle now, toward the beginning of the show that was big into Appleseed, and we were going to put some things together that were that cross-pollination. Basically, I was going to go do some shoots and uh, give away some free shoots in the listener contest, and everything just got crazy with the beginning of the show and busy and everything, and it never happened. I really need to rekindle that relationship and start working with Appleseed more. If you guys don't know what Appleseed is, it's an organization dedicated to creating riflemen real American riflemen, and they do a lot of shooting, and they've been very friendly to TSP, I think, because we do have a lot of synergies. So thanks for that, Kurt. Definitely get the person's name to me, and I'll contact them and see about going on their show with them. I think that would be great. And uh, folks, if you haven't checked out Appleseed, do. So let's shift gears a second, and let's hear an email from the hate mail folder. Let me go in there for a second and find one for you. Here we go. This is a great one. Dear Jack, when I first found the Survival Podcast, I thought I had found someone that understood reality. 
Unlike most people, you seem to have a firm grasp on the things that are going wrong on this planet. As I listened to you discuss Monsanto with hatred and passion, I thought I had found a brother. But when I heard that you were a global warming denier, I realized that I had not found a brother. I had found a wolf in sheep's clothing. You are exactly what is wrong with this country. No one could look at the science and understand this and still deny it. As I listened more, I realized that all you are is a shill like Limbaugh or Hannity. You paint your, your rhetoric a little bit differently, but your whole agenda revolves around the glorious GOP. You're nothing but a right-wing shill. Why don't you just be honest about it? Uh, because I'm not and I don't have a lot of response to that and I just wanted you guys to know the type of crap that I get on a daily basis I get one or two of these a day some of them are a bit more funny one day I'll dig some of the ones I have a special subfolder called mentally deranged and maybe I'll read one of the mentally deranged ones uh, to you guys later I don't really feel like doing that today but that's the typical thing. Now, the thing is, if I keep going in that folder, guys, I'll find you one that says that they thought they had found a true conservative that understood the values of America, but I'm nothing but a liberal jerk. And, I, you know, there's, there's people that use some, some words I won't even use uh, to describe the fact that I don't disgrace or uh, put uh, put down other uh, types of society, other classifications of society, other races, other belief systems. Uh, it, it's really funny the uh, the issues that some of these people seem to have. Um, let's take something a little more seriously for a minute here. Uh, Jimmy Jimmy says, "Hey Jack, I work on a 34th floor, and today we had a fire drill. I was walking down, and I was thinking about whether if the fire was real, I would have been better off taking a few precautions, maybe a wet towel to prevent being overcome by smoke in the stairwell. Any ideas? Also, do you have any idea how likely my being involved in an office fire actually is?" All the best, Paul. So the email's Jimmy, the signature's Paul. Identity crisis, not sure. Anyway, um, but he has a website, so maybe that's something to do with it. Um, here we go. Uh, how likely are you to be involved in an office fire? There's not a tremendous number of them. One of the things that I learned from my years in telecommunications and cabling is how much precautions go in two fire suppression systems in office buildings. Uh, all the cabling and in modern installations is what's called uh, uh, plenum. And what plenum cable is, is it doesn't burn well. It just kind of smolders and it won't go anywhere. The old days they used to use data cabling and, and voice cabling with PVC, and if you lit it, it burned like a fuse. It, just, it would take the fire elsewhere. Um, fire blocking goes in between all of the wall penetrations. When you walk through a door, that door is basically the only, in, a, in a properly built office. The only penetration in that wall is the door itself. Above the door in the header, uh, there's a, there's a header that goes all the way up to the next floor, and all of that's blocked with, with with fire stopping. And every time you penetrate a wall, you have to go in and put fire stopping. So even if a fire starts, um, generally it doesn't spread very well. The next thing to think about is that almost every modern office building today, especially something with what do you say, 34, 31 floors. So it's probably a you know probably not on the roof, so it's probably a bigger building. That building like that's going to have um, fire suppression systems in it, uh, in in the form of sprinkler systems that are designed to put fire out. So office building fires are not the biggest risk 
out there today. But, of course, things can happen, so being prepared is not a bad idea. The other thing is the way that stairwells are built. Stairwells are built as a concrete and almost sealed channel through the building, specifically so that during a fire evacuation that they're well protected. And you don't get a lot, you can get some, but you don't get a lot of smoke in the stairwells usually. Uh, about the only smoke that you'll get in is as people are filing into the stairwell. If the smoke's that heavy, then people are going to be passing out and not getting in there. I mean, that's that's the harsh reality of that. So, And then once in the stairwell, obviously the smoke tends to rise and you're going down. Uh, but a wet towel, yeah, I guess it wouldn't hurt. Uh, it probably wouldn't hurt to get one of the little itty-bitty um, smoke uh, oxygen-supported respirators if you're that concerned about it. It wouldn't be on the top of my concern list, though. If you think about it, how many fires have we seen in office buildings? You know when a 30-story building catches on fire that it makes the news. We don't see it often. And then I guess the other one that really you know, we have to kind of look at with this, with how dangerous is it in the stairwells, even when two giant airplanes crashed into two giant buildings, as long as you weren't where the plane came through directly and killed uh, by the flames, the smoke, or the impact almost immediately, and as long as the stairwell that you were trying to get into wasn't smashed into by the plane, um, people that got into the stairwells of those two buildings on a horrific day walked all the way to the bottom and walked out of the building and lived to see another day. So even in the worst possible scenario, the stairwells prove safe. So, again, it's not that I don't care. It's not that I wouldn't think about it. It's just not the top of the priority list because of what history's bared out. Total gear shifter here, once again, um, comes from Brian. Brian says, hey, Jack, with all the talk about the U.N. Climate Gate Conference, or the U.N. Climate Conference, and the crap they're trying to pull, set up a global taxing body, I'm wondering what we can do to help. Should we be writing our senators and representatives now? Is there a good way to tell them we don't want the global body taxing us as this puts a country in their power? Are there any organized bodies trying to fight this? I don't know about the organized bodies. I really don't, because as much as I think this is bullshit, um, I don't spend a lot of energy on it, other than whenever I talk about it, telling people, listen, find out the other side of the story. Don't buy into this bullshit. Um, Let's start with our representatives. I think that we right now have a group of people that I have to call non-representatives. They are non-representing the people. But yeah, you let them hear it. You let them hear it that you don't want this crap. Now here's what you have to understand. They're not involved in Copenhagen right now. That big conference going on over there. And our ass clown president can go over there and he can promise anything and everything that he wants to promise. He can come back home and be lauded as a hero by the Al Gore worshippers and say, we have agreed to a monumentous agreement that will save the planet from the aliens, the Martians, and the Romulans. Or whatever the hell else he wants to say. If Congress doesn't ratify it, it doesn't happen. So, just because they make the deal in Denmark on a dark and stormy day. And anybody that can tell me where that's where that comes from, the first person to email me today and tell me where the deal was made in Denmark on a dark and stormy day comes from, I'll give a free one-year membership to the MSB. Uh, but just because they make the deal in Denmark does not mean that we are bound to it. Look at Kyoto. They made all these great promises and agreements in Kyoto, and our Congress said, no, we're not going to do that. So um, we have a chance to fight it. Is there a good way to tell them they don't? We don't want this uh, as a taxing body. Puts our, you know, the the big thing is to say, hey, whatever these guys agree to in Denmark, we don't want. Don't do it. We can take care of things at home. Organized bodies, help me out, folks. Tell me, tell me the organized bodies trying to fight this. I'm sure that they're out there. Um, 
and, and I'll leave it at that if somebody wants to get involved with it. Here's the thing, though. This is what I've always told you guys when we talk about politics. Whenever you see something about to happen, and there's a lot of resistance to it, and there's a lot of fighting, and, you know, it's, it's just, we, this is the big one, and we've got to stand tall, and they're going to try to ram this down our throats, and we can't let it happen. That is always the magician waving his right hand, while very, very carefully, he takes his left hand, and he palms the coin, and voila, pulls it out of your ear. So what is it this time? It's a little discussed court decision. It's kind of been discussed right in with Copenhagen and the new, all this new stuff. And uh, it's been so lumped together when it has been discussed that I don't think most people get what it really means. Basically, the Supreme Court came out backing a, a, a decision that says that the EPA is going to now regulate CO2 as a toxin. The EPA, let me say this again, the EPA is now basically chartered with a, with a decision to go out and regulate CO2 as a toxin. So in other words, if you want to dump you know, mercury in your backyard, the EPA says, I'm sorry, you can't dump mercury in your backyard. We have very specific ways that mercury needs to be handled. Probably not good enough. you know. But now the, the, the EPA is chartered with the same authority over CO2 emissions. So whatever happens in Denmark doesn't matter anymore. Because what we've had now is a runaround, an endgame, you know, a flanking maneuver here, where now the Obama administration working through the EPA can go in and start capping carbon emissions within the United States without any regard to the treaty. And here's the big one, without any oversight or any regard from Congress or the Senate. The Senate and the Congress need to be moving on this thing right now and saying, you're not going to run unchecked. We're going to help define guidelines. If we're going to be talking about law, then it goes through the legislature. What they've done with this little end game around through the court system, as is so often done, is they've, they've taken a regulatory body, the EPA, and given them the ability to write law in the form of regulation. See, law is supposed to come from the legislature, and then regulatory bodies are supposed to oversee and enforce that law. Now, the regulatory bodies may advise Congress and the Senate on what new laws they need to do their job and what new things they need to do their job. But all of the actual law is supposed to come from there. But as we moved into a world where people started writing codes, like the IRS, the IRS writes law in the form of code, even though there's no law on the books that says they're allowed to do the shit that they do. They wrote it as code, and they get to enforce it with the full might and power of the government behind them. That's what the EPA does. And with this new decision, the EPA is going to be able to regulate CO2 that way. That just happened. Everybody's still looking over at Denmark. Everybody's hooting and hollering about climate gate. But you didn't pay attention to the magician's left hand. The quarter just came out. The rabbit got yanked out of the hat. That's what you need to watch for now. And you need to call your congressman and your senator. You need to say, I was paying attention to the magician's left hand. I know about this court decision. I expect you guys to do something about this. Because if you don't, all of this bullshit over there doesn't matter, and they're going to do it anyway. And they're going to cripple our economy anyway. And they're going to go put businesses out of business anyway. And none of this solves the pollution problems. I am all for solving the pollution problems. I get a lot of hate mail about that too. You want to kill the planet. I don't want to kill the planet. I want people living sustainably. I want them using alternative forms of energy. I want them growing their own food. I want them doing all the crap that Al Gore talks about and never does. 
but it ain't going to happen because we go put a business under because he has too much CO2. Let me put it to you this way. Right now, breathe in, breathe out. You just expelled CO2. You have just expelled a toxin that is now regulated by the Environmental Protection Agency. Great job, polluter. That's what you are now, according to the EPA, in this new decision. So please check into that and let your Congress critters know about that. All right. Let's shift gears. A little happier, a uh, little feedback letter here from somebody. I like mixing this stuff up. This is fun. All right. This one comes from uh, Larry. Larry? Yeah, Larry. Uh, actually, Lily. Larry and Lily. Neat, interesting couple. Hi, Jack. You've been part of our family for the past year now. I finally visited your website for the first time tonight and put a face with your voice. My husband, Larry, also listens to your podcast and your show and has become a favorite subject of our conversations as we're planning our homestead. We like to have quality time together over a nice home-cooked candlelight dinner in the middle of the week and discuss what Jack was telling us on the latest episode. That's so freaking cool. Larry and I have been living the dream with our corporate lives and credit cards. A year ago, we got on the bandwagon with Dave's Getting Out of Debt Snowball Program. They meet Dave Ramsey, by the way, for those that don't know. Uh, he then eased me into, the, his, into new views with Catherine Albright, and we discovered a whole new side of us. I wanted to know more, and he asked me if I really wanted to, quote, take the pill. It was too late. There was no going back. So he introduced me to Alex Jones. Our lives were changed forever, as you can imagine. We are in our mid-30s and only found each other three years ago. It's been a true growing experience to make life-altering decisions with a soulmate. We are on a path to self-sufficiency, and that's very exciting. I want to thank you, Jack, for being a true inspiration. I appreciate your honesty and knowledge sharing. Most of all, you don't only post problems, but give us solutions. Back to basics simply seems to be the answer. How could we have forgotten what we came from? You just got the whole thing. Ultimately, you have taught me to prepare for anything. If nothing goes wrong, at least I have a better quality of life today and the things I love the most tomorrow, my family. Have a good week, Lily. Awesome. Awesome. And why did I read that one? I want you guys to see that Love Alex Jones. Yes, the Survival Podcast and Alex Jones are compatible. I don't hate Alex Jones. I get a lot of hate mail. You're so condescending to Alex Jones listeners, and you're such a jerk, and Alex is a hero, and you're an idiot. And yeah, Come on. Look, I've said this before. I don't know how to put it any other way. I'm not going to change the way I think to make anybody happy. I like Alex Jones. I like the work that he does. I, when I listen to him, and I listen to him probably once a week, I actually listen to his whole show. I try not to listen too much. I try not to listen to anybody too much that's too close to what I do because I don't want their voice and their ideas to become mine. I want to stay independent and have an independent view. So if I sit and listen to people all the time that are very close to what I'm talking about, I will start to absorb them too much and parrot them to a degree. And I don't ever want to be a parrot for anybody. So I limit how much I listen, but I listen to the guy and I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you're dead on. You're right, man. And it, this week, I listened to him on climate control, and I'm like, man, this guy's nailing it. And then we always going to get to the end where they're going to round us up, put us in famous camps, and eliminate 60% of the population of the earth, and, and, and that's where we go. And we don't agree anymore. And I think if you believe that, you, you really got to ask yourself, why haven't they done it yet? They've been going to kill us for 50 years, 100 years. They haven't done it yet. They were going to kill us last year. They didn't do it. But, you know what? There's so much crap out there, and there's so much evil 
done by government and corporations together, I understand why people believe these things. Because it doesn't seem out of the limits. And I, I think I've, over the, the times I've listened to Alex, figured out what makes him believe that things are as evil as they are. Right? And I'm not saying that they're not evil. I'm just saying they're not maybe quite as nefarious or well organized as he seems to think they might be. That there's this like 12 people that control everything in the world. That, that type of thing is going to move on too far. But I think what it is is Alex has looked at the third world. And he's looked at all this crap that's supposed to help third world nations, like this new climate thing. And he's seen the death, devastation, destruction, dead enslavement, and poverty heaped upon the third world by the civilized world. The United States, Europe, the UK, Australia, all of the the big nations, and what we've done. I think Alex has looked at Africa and realized, you know that DDT stuff we don't spray anymore in the United States? Maybe, just maybe, that was the right thing to do here. But over there, it would save millions of lives a year if they sprayed certain areas with DDT that would get rid of the mosquitoes, but they won't do it. They enforce a ban on other nations that didn't agree to it, and it costs millions of lives a year in the form of malaria. I think he's looked at the impoverished people in those nations, and I think it's touched his heart. And I think he sees so much evil there that anything that connects to the people that do that evil, if it's also evil, seems like it must be true. So we just bicurforate at a point. And it's about 80% up the ladder. He goes one way, I go the other way, and I don't begrudge him. So those of you that get all upset because of my view of Alex Jones, relax, man. Relax. It's okay. Um, I'm not trying to change the way you think. Just telling you what I think. And I'm not going to soften the blow just because it doesn't, you know, it, it, if I did, maybe I would. Well, here's what I get too. If you would be nicer to Alex and his audience, you would get more of his listeners. I'm not trying to steal Alex's listeners. If you listen to both shows, great. If you listen to my show and not his, great. If you listen to his show and not mine, great. I'm trying to serve my audience, and, and that's really what it's all about. And that's what Alex does. He serves his audience, and I'm cool with him. All right. All right. Next thing. Um, the next one comes from Frank. And uh, I think this is about the Veterans Day show that he was writing me about. We're pretty far back now. I do not know how to thank you for today's show, Jack. My brother is active duty Army today, deployed in Afghanistan. He has been in the Army for maybe 10 years or so. I lost understanding about my brother and his behavior years ago. Your explanation of what got what you got out of the military service explained and clarified how and why my brother, uh, how and why, how, Okay, let me read this again. Your explanation of what you got out of military service explained and clarified how and why what my brother does and says. Bad English, I know, but I'm a bit emotional right now. Okay, that's not me. Being a bit disabled, I can never serve in the military, so I cannot see it for myself. You explain my brother just by saying what you got out of it. I have... I now have so much better understanding than I ever did before. Again, thank you so much for today's show, Frank. And I think what he's really talking about when I said what I got out of the military there was an understanding that the man next to you was your brother and you took care of him above all other things. I think that learning how to lead and learning how to follow is probably part of that. I think also learning how precious life really is and seeing that people get in harm's way very often. And I just bet that he was also talking a little bit about how when you go up to a vet and you say thank you for your service, um, they never look you in the eye. You got a big, strong soldier 
big strong woman, big strong man, somebody that's that's faced danger willingly, voluntarily, and then you know they'll they'll shake your hand firm, they'll look you in the eye, just about anything. You tell them thank you for your service, and they kind of look away, and uh, they just they just seem to drift. And they you know they usually say well thank you back, but they just don't seem like they're really taking the thank you. And what that is, folks, if you haven't heard the Veterans Day show, that's a thought. And it's a thought that's always the same for every soldier. And it could be because the person served hot meals and never really got shot at, or because even though the guy did get shot at and maybe was a decorated combat soldier, his buddy never came home, or his other buddy came home without a leg. And then the guy that came home without a leg, he's like, yeah, but my other buddies never came home at all. And it's the same thought for all of them. Somebody else deserves it more. And I think that's a big thing people don't understand about vets. That that's how they'll always think for the rest of their lives. And it will change them. And at times, it will make them turn inward. It will make them seem seem antisocial. At times, they will just seem like, I don't fit in with you people anymore. And they don't really not fit in with you, but they need space. I remember when I first got out of the Army, I went home to Pennsylvania before I came down here to Texas. And... Um, I went out with a bunch of my old high school buddies, and we got a bunch of beer, and we went out by, you know, one of the, the big stripping holes, one of the clean ones uh, that you can swim in. We had a big fire going. We had about 20 of us out there. It was just like when we used to run off and do it when we weren't supposed to because we were still in school and not old enough to drink, except we were all, you know, 21, 22-ish at this point. And uh, everybody sitting around listening to some music, talking, the typical thing that people do in a town like that. And I'll tell you what, I was the only person there that had ever been in the military. And at some point, I picked up a couple beers. I walked about, I mean, not far enough away where no one could see me, maybe 50 yards away. I sat on a rock, and I looked out over the water. And I got far enough away where I could, I could still hear it, but it was really kind of in the distance. And I sat there alone with my thoughts, and I drank a couple beers. And I remember one of my best friends, Heath, said to my other, one of my other really good friends, Tim, I don't know what's wrong with him. You know, we're all having a good time, and he just leaves. And he spends like half an hour over there completely alone. And then he comes back, and he doesn't want to talk about what he was doing. You know what? I had been out of the military for about three weeks. I can't really even tell you what I was doing. I can't even tell you why I did it. But that's the veteran, you know, that occasionally does that. It doesn't matter if if, if the guy was never in, 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 you know, the deep shit, as they say, because I was never in that. You know, we had some things happen that were kind of interesting and, and put a little bit of fear in you, but I was never the guy that was out there running a, a tank on the battlefield or firing from a trench or anything like that. But there's a certain lifestyle that builds up around the soldier that stays with him for the rest of his life. And every once in a while, he has to unplug. And he has to maybe time travel a little bit in his mind. And you'll see that whenever he meets another soldier, they'll always bond because they'll understand each other in a way that nobody else can. I don't think that's unique to soldiers. You tell me two cops that meet that don't always form some level of fraternity between them. Two firefighters. One can be from San Francisco, one can be from New York. And there's still some level of brotherhood there. So I think that's what Frank's talking about. I hope I got it right. But I think that's something that we really uh, need to think about when we're dealing with uh, especially relations that have served and sometimes not understanding them. So um, Mark the Limey wrote me one of these email books where it's like there's no way I can cover everything and it's hard to even cover one thing because there's so much going on. And to be fair to Mark, he's written me a lot more emails since this uh, this one, and he's gotten better at 
kind of nailing it down to one issue at a time. But I thought I'd pull one out of here because I thought it was a good question. He was uh, saying ages ago you talked about Britain's influences over the United States of America. Do you really think the U.K. ever had any real influence? I think we have none now, and Obama and Brown don't seem to get along. Um, and he was also talking about the pound being a significant crutch for the dollar and how I can explain that more on a future episode. So I think this is one of the most misunderstood things in the world about Britain's influence and control of the United States because we, we look back and we go, well, we had a revolution. We kicked their ass out. And then in 1812 they tried it again and we kicked their ass out again and they didn't come back and they put their tail between the legs and they went away. All of this is true. But immediately after the War of 1812 ended, they began looking for ways to control the population um, of the United States, and they realized that they couldn't do it directly, that that war was lost. And there was actually a significant amount of money paid to Britain all the way up until the late 90s by the United States that came from the pockets of taxpayers. And that happened from about 1814. So for well over 150 years, we paid the Britain kind of some extortion money. Now, you can look that up if you want to. It's true. I'm not going to get deep into that because there's tons of conspiracy theories around it, but it was part of a settlement between the two nations. That's not really it, though. That's not really the control. What happened was the bankers of the world collectively decided to, con- to conspire. Yes, conspire, as in a conspiracy. But it wasn't really a conspiracy. It was open and honest, and they decided they were going to come in and try to control the economy. Now, Andy Jackson, coming out of the War of 1812, became the seventh president of the United States and one of the best that we've ever had. And he put us on the greenback and said, we are not going to go into this foreign manipulation of currency, and we're going to get out of it. By the Civil War... There was really a push to bring the central bank back. Little bits of it came back here and there all the way through. There were correspondences between the Lincoln administration and the British throughout the Civil War that laid the framing and groundwork for the eventual establishment of the Federal Reserve System. Because at that point they had decided there was absolutely no way they were ever going to control this nation again uh, as a colony. And I think some people forget, it wasn't that long ago that people in Britain still called this place the colonies. I'm talking 30 years ago. Not all of them, but there were British people who called America the colonies 30 years ago. All right, we're talking 1975, 1980, the colonies. And uh, so it wasn't like once the revolution ended, they were like, okay, we're cool. They can just go on and be themselves. You know, It wasn't like there wasn't an attempt to bring this back. So eventually what happened is, and this is where people don't get it, People think that the power of a country lies in its government. It lies in its money. And the bankers that control Britain and the bankers that ended up controlling the United States worked together in the Federal Reserve today. That was established in 1913. And eventually we pulled the dollar off the gold standard under Roosevelt and then lost the last vestiges of it under uh, Nixon. The very last vestiges. But it was really a dead thing by the 1930s under Roosevelt when he basically revalued the dollar, took the country's gold and sold it off to pay our debt. Once that happened and we had this Federal Reserve System, we had banks that were owned by Americans and banks that were owned by the British privately, controlling the currency of the United States and eventually controlling the currency of Great Britain. 
So the way that the Federal Reserve works is by controlling how much money they put in and how much money they take out. They control the value of the dollar. If you want the dollar's value to drop, you put more in. If you want the value's dollar's value to rise, they take more out. This is not conspiracy theory. This is the Federal Reserve. It's how it works. If you go read the documentation on their website, they'll tell you the same thing. The people that do it will tell. They won't even, if you ask them, they won't even say, yeah, that's what we do. That's our job. Our job is to make sure that we control recessions and depressions and things like that. And we keep them from going postal by manipulation of the currency. So you have the private banks of the United States and the private banks of Britain working together to do this, and then the private banks in Britain are doing the same thing with the British pound. And somehow, the pound always stays right about the same relationship to the dollar. What I'm saying is they peg the pound to the dollar, they make the pound worth more than the dollar, they make the dollar worth less than the pound, and then the Chinese come in on the back end and do independently all of their own. They manipulate their currency to stay weak against the dollar at all times to maintain a trade imbalance. But Britain and the United States work very cohesively together. It's not one doing it at the It's not like a chess match where the U.S. does something and they're, they're planning this together. They're doing this together. The ties go back as long as the country's existence does. We're talking about the biggest banks in the, in the world, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, um, people like that. And those families have been wealthy for so long, and they have so much, they don't really have anything else to do but go around and screw with the world's money supply. And that's that cohesion between Britain and the United States. And it does seep into the government because the people with the money control the government to a degree, not 100%. But that's why Britain will always back the United States. The United States will always back Britain in its military operations if they actually matter and if there's profit in them. Because this is like a giant monopoly board for these people. That's where, like I said, Alex Jones and I get along on some things. That's a place we get along perfectly. These people see the world as a giant monopoly board, and they're playing a game. It's more like a casino than a monopoly board, though. Because when they need more chips, they just go to the house and get some more chips. And they figure out ways to make the chips multiply. And then they put stuff on a roulette wheel, and they see what happens. And that's what's going on there. That's that interrelationship, and it's real. And it's undeniable, and anybody that wants to do enough investigation can determine that. And that's why we're always at risk from a currency devaluation, because when you play a game with numbers long enough, sooner or later it, it turns into a Ponzi scheme, and that's what our current economy is. It's a Ponzi scheme. And when you saw the real estate market crash, and you saw the stock market crash, and you saw unemployment numbers soar, that was one piece of the Ponzi scheme coming down. That's exactly what it was. All of the fake inflated currency, the, 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 the currency that was created out of thin air, collapsed. And what I mean by that is a guy would buy a house, and somebody would sell his mortgage off to somebody else. And then somebody would take a bunch of those mortgages and put them in a great big package. And then they'd buy insurance against default from, a, from an insurance company. And that insurance policy would have value. Because if the people didn't default... Um, the, the insurance would just expire. But if the insurance, if the people did default, the insurance would pay out. So there was a certain value to that insurance policy. So then people took a whole bunch of those insurance policies and packaged them up and created a, a, another asset that was nothing but a bunch of insurance policies against real estate. And then they sold those. And then the guy that bought those said, oh crap, I gotta insure this. And then he, and that was derivatives. And when that one guy didn't pay for his one house a couple hundred thousand times, instead of it just being one guy, 
that brought the whole thing down. Boom. Well, that's what's done with our currency. Our currency is being the same exact things are being done with our currency. This is why I know you, some of you guys don't believe this. The, the, the real climate change believers and all. This is why it's so important to them to get cap and trade passed. If you create cap and trade, if you make it pass, then what they do is they create a new substance to do this with, carbon credits. Okay, If cap and trade passes, this has nothing to do with Copenhagen. Cap and trade is something that we're doing here in the United States. That's the other thing. You, right hand, left hand, the magician, right? They're over there in Copenhagen. But the, but the House already passed the cap and trade bill. It's in the Senate now. They pass it. Ask Clown will sign it. Cap and trade takes... Something that doesn't exist, somebody not doing something, right? That's what that's what a carbon credit is. I'm a business, I sit here, I have an allowance to produce carbon, but I don't produce it. So I have a carbon credit, right? Or I'm a giant corporation and I go buy a couple hundred thousand acres of rainforest and I sit on it and I don't do anything with it and then it has a certain amount of carbon that it captures and because I own it, I have credits. It makes those credits that mean nothing now into a currency. So now that the guy that owns the business that doesn't produce carbon that could or owns the trees can sell the credit to somebody that does produce carbon. And when money flows, profits happen. See, the entire global economy, the, this entire dichotomy between the British and the United States and the rest of the world governments, to be fair, is not based on making money. It's ma- based on making money flow around in a big circle. And as long as it circulates... There's profit for all the banks in the circle. Because the banks charge interest when the money goes from one place to another and back. And that's how they make money. That's why they like war. When wars happen, countries have to borrow more money. That increases the debt load. It increases the interest back to the bank. The the country will always have the money to pay the bank. Because if the country doesn't, the bank will print more money, create more money, and have more interest paid back. It's the ultimate scam. It really is. And that's the economy that we live in today. And that's why this is so important to them, because it gives them another commodity to trade. Those that still believe in this, again, I don't care what you think about the environment. The environment, go on this. Let's just talk about cap and trade for what it is and how it ties into this international monetary system. If this passes, carbon credits being traded in the world will exceed the total value of oil being traded in the world. They will exceed the total value of real estate being traded in the world. They will exceed the total value of food being traded in the world. People have said, how is cabin trade good for big business? It creates big business. It gives every big business out there a new tool. The oil companies are for cap and trade, whether you believe that or not. I won't go in any deeper because I'm running out of time today. But that's a fact. The oil companies are actually for cap and trade. Maybe next week I'll tell you why. All right, but I'm going to let you hang on that one now. Uh, last little email from somebody here. Jack, I recently found your podcast while searching for a podcast. Oh, hold on back. Sean. Sean says, Jack, I recently found your podcast while searching for a podcast on surviving in case I got lost in the wilderness. What I didn't realize is I was already lost in the wilderness, and your podcast was what I was really looking for. Thanks for your common sense approach to surviving today's insane economy. I have always considered myself a very conservative Republican and never even thought I would hear myself say that. Uh, say that I'm contemplating the libertarian view. I never realized until I listened to you, your views on libertarianism how much of a libertarian I already am. Once again, thanks for all your work and your common sense views about today's world. 
I think most people are libertarians and don't know it. Because most people don't want to interfere with the affairs of other people, and they don't want their affairs interfered with. And what they're looking for out of government is protection so that I can live my way and you can live your way and we don't interfere with each other. That, that's that's it. They want me to be able to trade with you, and you can trade with me with commerce, and I can choose to do business with you, or I can choose to not do business with you, because we're free people. They want to make sure that nobody can come and steal. That's a charter of government to protect the people. They want to make sure that nobody can come and kill you. That's a charter of government to protect the people. They want to make sure that there is adequate uh, ability for us to, 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 to interact with each other throughout the country, ensure that we're able to, to, to freely travel and things like that. But when it comes down to what that guy over there does in his own house, as long as he's not hurting anybody else, I really don't care. And government just keeps sticking its nose deeper and deeper and deeper into the lives of people. And the conservative Republican does it, and the liberal Democrat does it. I'm talking about the conservative Republican and the liberal Democrat in office. Those that are supposed to be serving, that think they're ruling, they stick their nose into the lives. And you can, if you go look for it, you'll find countless laws passed in the past 20 years that were Republican initiatives that intrude on the individual lives of people, and you'll find countless laws passed by Democrats that intrude on the individual lives of people. The only difference is the Republican intrudes on the personal life of people or prevents people's personal lives from giving them certain freedoms. Gay marriage would be an example there. right? We're so worried what's going to happen if Steve and Adam get married. I don't care. I don't care. I don't like it. I'm not real. I'm not going to go hang out with them. I'm not real comfortable around a couple gay guys. I, I know that sounds bigoted, but I'm being honest about it. And you know what? If the person's gay, I'll get along with them just fine, just fine, as long as they're not that in-your-face flaming version of it, right? And, and I'll be cool with them, and I'd hire them to do a job, and I'll treat them with respect. And if they're the best guy when a promotion comes, I'll give it to them. I, I, I treat them the same way I treat anybody else but they happen to have a, a certain part of their lifestyle that I don't want to be involved with. Just like somebody else may have a part of their lifestyle, the guy smokes pot, great? He might be a decent guy. He might be a good guy. He might not let his pot smoking interfere with his life, but when he flames up the joint, get the hell away from me. I don't want to be around you when you're doing that. Show up later. As long as you're coherent, we're good with each other. I'm not going to hate on you for it, right? But it's a behavior that I don't want to participate in. That's it. And that's how most libertarians think. Then you get the socialist, the Democrat, the progressive, whatever the hell we're supposed to call them today, that then wants to go in and interfere with my ability to earn money to create private property and to keep it. So both of them intrude on our individual private lives just from different angles. And if you think that is a coincidence, you've been blinded to the real conspiracy. The real conspiracy is the government exists as a two-party system, specifically so we can take people, polarize them left and right, and both sides can intrude on our lives. And they slowly advance side by side, all while they pretend to fight each other. And in the end, the government controls our personal lives and our financial lives. And we lose our freedom and our liberty and our ability to self-govern. That's what's really going on out there. Kind of a downer, I guess, but the good news is you don't have to play the game. You don't have to participate in this. Yes, write your congressman. Yes, write your senator. But the things that you can do to really change your life exist under your own two feet and at the end of your own two hands. 
They're your backyard. They're the garden that provides for you. They're the trees, the vines, and the bushes that provide for you year after year after year. They're a good stockpile of food to make it 30, 60, 90, 180 days, whatever works for you. So that if something goes wrong, you can sustain yourself. They're that generator, they're that solar panel, they're that windmill. These are the things that create liberty in our lives. We delude ourselves when we think what we do at the ballot box next November is going to be that big of a deal for the country. We've been marching the same direction year after year after year. The only thing that's going to change this country is to create 50 to 100 million people that can look at the government and say, I don't need you. I don't need you in the cloak of a Republican. I don't need you in the cloak of a Democrat. I don't need you in the cloak of a socialist. I do not need you in the cloak of a fascist. I do not need you at all. I need nothing from you. I want nothing from you except to make sure that people don't steal from me. That's it. I want you to ensure my commerce with others, and I want you to go the hell away after doing that. I don't give a shit what those people over there are doing. Don't put in it's that the government does, folks. You know, you finally start down that path, and they go, look at those people over there. Look what they're doing. And you go, yeah, they shouldn't be doing that. It's not really affecting you. Ignore it. That's just like the little kid. He gets in trouble with mom. And then dad comes in on the conversation, and he's got mom and dad coming at him from both sides, and he says, but dad said, and he's misleading you, and he gets the parents arguing, and he sneaks away. That's what the government does. Don't let them do it anymore. Live your life independently. Live your life in liberty. Demand the very best for yourself and from yourself. Create independence for yourself, and everything those clowns do won't really matter. Be that example. Shine that light on the world. Get other people to do it too, not by telling them they need to, but by showing them how. Feed yourself. Produce your own energy. Have the ability to sustain yourself without systems of support, and people will gravitate towards that. You won't have to try to convince them that it's a good idea. And when we get enough people thinking that way, the government will change itself, because I hate to say this right now, but our government is a direct reflection of the people of this country. We really are. Now, I know you're saying they don't look like me. Well, they don't look like me either, guys. But take a walk through any major city. Talk to people in the middle of that city. You'll find that there's not as much disagreement with our government as we have led ourselves to believe. We have got to create the disagreement by creating independence. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. You can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.